Welcome to Meaning Over Money, a different kind of financial podcast where money is never about money. Welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited to have you here. We hope you're having an awesome week. And regardless of when you're listening to this, we hope it adds value to your journey. And if it does add value, it would mean the world to us if you would share with a friend or to rate and review our show. It makes a big difference. One of the things Cole and I talked about on our year-end wrap-up episode was that we did very few Q&A episodes in 2022, and one of them was very popular, and duh, we should be doing more Q&A. After all, the show is for the listeners, and so we're going to do more Q&A. We would love to, and part of that is we need your questions. So whatever question you have, we want to hear it. And so today... I put it out on Instagram, on my Instagram, and on the Meaning Over Money's Instagram, asking for questions, and we're going to answer every single one of them today. So every question here was was asked to us, and we're not scared to answer questions. So if you have a question, ask us. All right, first one is, somebody said, uh, 30 years old, they don't have a retirement, and they want to be wise, they want to retire, what do they do? Another question, though, about around the same lines came in like two minutes later was, what's the, what's the best way to get into investing? This question comes up over and over and over and over again. And uh, so if you're 30 years old without a retirement or if you're 23 and you do have a retirement, we all start where we start. First of all, you got to give yourself grace. We're all starting where we start. We can't do anything about the past and we can't rewrite anything but we, we have a new chance today. And if you are looking to start investing, I think there's two really main ways, two simple ways to get into investing. Number one, if you work for a company that has a 401k or a 403b, this is the easiest path. All you need to do is log on to your company's website. They can help you find that if you don't know where that's at. And all you do is you elect to contribute a portion of your compensation. And you'll, you'll contribute 1%, 2%, 3%, 10%, 20%, whatever it is. And they'll have options for you. And these are mutual fund options. So my recommendation for anybody that's going to invest is do it, especially if they're going to give you a match. For example, some companies, if you put in 3% of your pay, they'll give you another 3% just because. And so you put in 6 they put in 3 you just put in 9% of your pay. And that happens automatically every time you get paid. So if you have that available, do that. Great, especially if they offer a match. And in terms of what do you invest in? Scroll through your options. One of the the best, the simplest things you can do is find something that looks like S&P 500, total stock market index. But your keywords are the S&P 500 is a key. That's the 500 largest companies in the U.S. Index tells us that It's just a broad fund that's not meant to try to game the system. It's meant to just be the market. So anything around S&P 500, total stock market index, large cap index, something like that, is a great place to start. And that's just, it's a broad, probably a cheap way to invest. And in most 401ks have these options now. They didn't always used to, but they do now. So that would be a really simple way. The next way, let's just say you work for a company that doesn't offer a 401k or a 403b. Not all is lost. You have the ability to set up your own account. 
And the best account most people can set up is a Roth IRA. And a Roth IRA is great. You put money in and you don't get any tax benefit when you invest in a Roth IRA. But a Roth IRA, when you take it out later, when you're 60 or older, you pay no taxes. The government never gets to touch that money. And so that's tax-free money eventually down the road. And there's, this, there's income thresholds. You have to be under a certain income and you can only put so much a year into it. But the best way to set one up is you go to a Vanguard, a Schwab, a Fidelity, and just open up a Roth IRA. You go in, click open an account, what kind you can select Roth IRA. And then again, once you're in there, it's very simple. Search for their S&P 500 index, total stock market index, and you'll find probably a very cheap option. Fidelity has an amazing one. Vanguard has an amazing one. Schwab has amazing ones. There's very good options out there for cheap, broad index funds. And so those are the two best ways to get into investing, 401k, 403b, or maybe a Roth IRA. And once you have those accounts open, just look for broad index funds. They're very simple. You don't have to get funky with, with it and try to play the nuanced game or buy go buy single stocks. You don't have to do that. You can go buy the simplest thing, and I always argue that's the best thing. And if you want to learn more about investing, we have an investing course that teaches exactly these topics. This is exactly what this course does, is it shows you what you need to know about investing, and we walk you through actually setting up your accounts and executing. And so if you're interested in that, that's at meaningover.money. You can find that, um, but certainly no, no pressure to do that, but that may be a good resource for somebody. All right, next question. When is a good time to invest in rental real estate? This is a question that seems to come up more and more in, at least in my circles, and people are cognizant that investing in rental real estate can be a good thing. And I think there's this perception that we need to invest at a certain time. There's a certain time in the market to invest. And I always say the best time to invest in, in rental real estate when, is when it's best for you. Because you may not be ready when the market is at a certain point, a point that feels better to invest, what I would say is this. People are ready to invest in rental real estate when you have some financial stability in your life and that you can absorb taking on some bigger liabilities. When you buy a piece of, of rental real estate, number one, you, you might be going into debt, maybe not, but maybe you will. There's a loan obligation that will be on you then. And if there's no tenant in the property, that loan payment will fall on your shoulders and your shoulders alone, as will all of the other utilities and other costs. The other thing with owning rental real estate is, is all the maintenance and upkeep. It's not cheap to own a home, which we've talked about on this podcast before. And so you need to make sure that if the furnace goes out and you need to spend eight grand, you can absorb that. Or if you need to replace the roof or you have water damage or, or many number of things that happen when you own a, a piece of property that you can personally absorb that. So for most people, it looks like you have a good margin of savings, an emergency fund, and you're able to create a down payment for this, this property to be able to buy it and to be able to afford and the economics work out. 
Now, if you have to finance 100% of this property and you're looking at the numbers and, and the rent barely even covers your mortgage and, and the other expenses take you underwater, that's probably not a good situation. Nor is it a good situation to wipe out all of your savings to buy a piece of property that does look like it has some, some level of cash flow, except you're naked financially, and if something goes wrong, you're in a bad spot. This is to make your life better. This is to add value to your life, not to crush you with stress and financial pressure and obligation. And so that's what I would say to most people is, is make sure you have your financial foundation because this is adding a level of stress and pressure on your shoulders. There's also an opportunity. I love rental real estate, but you also have to be aware that this is adding some pressure and weight to your shoulders and you have to be able to sustain that, which is different than investing in the stock market. It takes nothing. If you want to invest $100 in the stock market, you invest $100. There's no, there's no weight that hangs over you with that. But real estate is different. And people always ask, Travis, is it true that real estate is better than investing in the stock market? And this is a question you didn't ask, so I'm going to answer this one anyway because I think it matters. And I always tell clients this. Real estate done right and done well will make more than the stock market. Long term, the stock market is 9% over a long period of time. Real estate, if done well and done right, will, should make well in excess of that. Well in excess of it. But you have to do it right and you have to do it well. And for a lot of people, they think it's just as simple as you buy a property and you rent it and you're automatically going to kick butt. That's not always the case. You have to know what you're doing. You have to be mindful of the risks and the, the opportunities along the way of what rent is and what the other financial nuances are to the situation. So I would always advise people, educate yourself. Get better, learn. Because just buying a piece of rental real estate does not mean you're going to succeed. In fact, it might mean you're going to fail. So let's make sure you go in eyes wide open. You go in educated. Learn as much as you can. There's so many books and podcasts about this topic of people that live it more than I live it today. Go, go educate yourself and absorb those materials. Because if done right and done well, it will do better than the stock market. But there's a cost to it. In terms of risk, there's a cost to it in terms of time and energy spent on it that you don't have in the stock market. Next question. What inspired us to create a podcast? I loved this question. I have always been a podcast listener. I've been a podcast listener avidly for a decade plus. So I've always been a big fan of the medium. And I kind of always had this in my head that like, Hey, maybe someday it'd be fun to start a podcast. Like I, I think a lot of people, a lot of us think that, uh, but that's where Cole comes into the picture. I'm a, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And if it were up to me, I'd still be thinking about maybe someday having a podcast. And here we are, we're 200 episodes in almost. And it really came down to Cole saying, we're starting figure out what you're going to say and sit down and record. And I think it really falls into this, this idea that I feel like we have something to share that's valuable. And I think there's somebody out in the world that can benefit from it. And you don't start a podcast because you want to make money. 
99% of podcasts will never make a penny. They will only lose money. You only do it because you, you want to do it. You feel it's valuable to others. And it's a way for you to have a creative outlet and to share whatever giftedness you have with the world. I think more people should start podcasts. There's so many people in my life that I, I encourage and push and, and really want to start a podcast because I think they have something valuable to the world, but they're scared to do it. They're scared because, you know, well, part of it is they don't want to do something that they're not going to make money in. And I said, well, definitely don't do it then. But they're also fearful that, you know, maybe it's going to be no good and nobody's going to listen or they have nothing to offer. And some of these people have something, to, you know, amazing things to offer. Uh, for example, I was, I, was, I was having a drink with a friend and, and the bartender overheard us talking about the podcast. And he's like, yeah, you know, I've always thought it'd be kind of cool to have a podcast, but I got nothing to talk about. And I know this guy well enough to know that he has got some stories. This guy's got stories coming out of his ears. And I, I said, dude, you should, I was, we have a studio, come record. It's right down the street from you. I said, you need to come to share these stories. I think people would love to hear your stories. I listen. And, and I think we sell ourselves short. I think we all have something to offer. And so if you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should do it. DM me, DM Cole, ask us, um, it's way easier to start than you would imagine. So that's what inspired love of podcasts. We felt like we had something worth sharing and we just decided to share it. Actually, Cole decided we were going to share it. And so that's the story. Is a car loan always a bad thing? This is a spicy one. Is a car loan always a bad thing? I try not to speak in black and white. I don't like it when people give absolutes. And I think I used to be an absolute sort of guy. And I've learned that there, there needs to be nuance and there needs to be context. I have many different experiences with clients in my own life about this topic. Here's my overarching thought. I mean, my overarching thought is I, I think almost every situation a car loan is bad. But is a car loan always bad? I don't want to be black and white. But here's the question I would ask you. Here's the question I would ask people. Why would you get a car loan? Why would you get one? The answer to that question, I think, tells you what you need to know to know if it's bad. And I think the answer for most people leads us to believe it's a bad thing. And I think the number one reason why people would get a car loan is because it affords you the opportunity to buy a car that you can't afford to pay for. And so in other words, if you are using a car loan to buy something that you can't afford to buy otherwise, it means you're pushing your finances down a different direction than maybe you want. It means that you're committing to this thing that you can't quite afford, but you're going to do it anyway. You're getting something you want now at the expense for what you might want later. And that's how I look at the trade-off of, of, of debt. Debt allows us to get the thing now and make our future selves pay for it later. 
The problem is your future self maybe wants something different than this car. The opportunity cost in the car payment that you make every month, that is every month. It's not a one-time decision. Next month, there might be something better to do with this money. And if you look at buying a car through the lens of what can I really afford? We would make a different choice. I was just meeting with a client the other day and they have a whole bunch of money in an investment account. And they want to buy a vehicle. They're having trouble with their vehicle and they want to buy a vehicle and they can easily afford to buy a vehicle. They can afford, and he said, but Travis, 30,000 minimum is, is what it's going to take to buy the thing we need. And I said, well, great, then go buy it. And he said, but I don't, I don't want to take my money out of the market. The market's been down the last year. I don't want to take my money out. So I'm kind of thinking I'll get a loan. And I think he, I think they were expecting me just to absolutely say, guys, this is like the worst thing in the world, which I didn't. I asked the question. And this is the question I ask. I said, would you be willing to write a check for $30,000 to buy this vehicle? Because you have it. Would you be willing to write a check to buy this vehicle? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't buy this vehicle because it means the debt is psychologically altering the way that you view it. If you wouldn't write a check to buy the vehicle, it probably means this isn't the right vehicle for you. If your answer was, yeah, I, I would write a check, but I don't want to, and there's some reasons why I wouldn't want to, but I would do it, that changes the conversation. And so I think it's worth having that conversation with yourself to understand why are you doing it? Because debt alters our perspective of the purchase and it, and it leads us down a different road that I, I argue is oftentimes unhealthy. And so I hope that answer helped. That was a longer answer than I was expecting. What is one thing about finance that I wish someone told me sooner? We recently did an episode about the 10 things I wish I knew when I was 21 years old. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes to that. But one thing about finance that I wish somebody would have told me sooner. I think it goes back to the debt piece. I wish, I wish somebody would have told me earlier in life that when you make a purchase and you use debt to do it, your future self is the one who has to pay the price so that your current self can get what they want now. I really wish I understood it because as I got older, I realized someday my current self will become my future self. And that guy has to live with the decisions that younger me made. And when I was in my 20s, I was a, you know, let's just say I was a 25-year-old living my 25-year-old life. And if my 25-year-old self could get what my 25-year-old self wanted, I would do it. But I eventually became 35. And then I'm going to be 45. And those versions of me have to pay the price of 25-year-old me. And all we talk about with debt is, can you afford the payment? Is the interest rate low? 
mathematically are we able to win with it? And I don't think we often think about the opportunity cost to our future selves when we think about the debt. And had I known then what I know now, I would have made so many different choices. I would have made better choices. Current me, which is the then future me, would be so much better off today had I lived through that lens of not making my future self pay for what my current self wants. And so that's what I would say. That's the piece I wish somebody would have walked alongside of me and said, hey, man, maybe you need to look at it a little different way. All right, last question. What are your thoughts on FTX? And for some of you, FTX, you've heard it a million times. Others have never heard it. FTX is a company that went completely belly up. It's a crypto company that is allegedly, has allegedly defrauded billions and billions of dollars from everyday investors. And many A-list celebrities have lost tens and tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars on this company as well. But a lot of people lost a lot of money because of seemingly fraudulent acts by the, by the founder and owner. First, and all, first of all, I think it's tragic. I've been hypercritical of crypto since the beginning. And I think it's tragic. As much as I'm critical, I, I don't wish ill upon people. I don't wish people's lives ruined, and that's clearly what's happening here. One of the selling points of crypto, one of the reasons why crypto people like crypto is because it's unregulated. The man is out of it. The man can't mess with me. And I think after what's happened here, I think people are going to ask the man to maybe step in and provide some oversight because, in my opinion, this is one of the things that can happen when there is no regulation. Now, I, I am not in the pro-regulation camp. I think we over-regulate everything. But I think there is a, a middle ground there Regulation is a good thing and that I think we need to have an authority that helps keep the playing field as even as possible and make sure that wrongdoers aren't defrauding people of billions of dollars. I think while this might be the worst thing that's ever happened in the crypto market, when we look back, it might be the best thing that ever happened to crypto because this might be the point where the regulators finally step in, but they do so at the request of the people who have forever said, we don't want you here to regulate us. I think we're going to find the medium, at least at first, I think we're going to find the medium where we bring some stability and cohesion to this mess. And maybe that's what solidifies crypto as a utilitarian tool in our modern society. Maybe that's what's needed to get it there. And there will always be people that hate that idea. They still don't want it regulated. But, but people have to know 
that when they invest in crypto, though, though it is volatile and it is risky, at least they know that they're not going to be defrauded and some crook isn't going to steal, you know, tens of thousands of dollars from them. People deserve at least that. People can take whatever risk they want, but we need to be ensured that people aren't going to steal our money. At the very base level, we have to have that. And so those are my thoughts. I think it's tragic. I think it's sad. I think people have um, unfairly lost a lot. But maybe this is a new dawn that will help the entire industry get better so that this doesn't have to happen again. And so that's it. Those are my Q&A for today. Thank you for the questions. Keep the questions coming. We're grateful for it. We want to hear what you want to hear about. And then we're going to talk about that. And sometimes when you ask a question, that just becomes its own episode. We'll continue to do that as well. A lot of our episodes actually are that. So thank you for your questions. Thank you for your feedback, the good and the bad. That's all we have for today. If you'd like to reach us outside of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can find us on TikTok, YouTube. You can find us in our Facebook community. Link is in the show notes. You can find us on Instagram or me, Travis Shelton, on Instagram. We have our daily blog. Link is in the show notes. And, of course, you can find our website with our free resources and our courses, and that's at meaningover.money. And so for some of you, our courses might be a good next step, but if not, that's okay. We're just glad that you're here, and we hope this podcast continues to add value to your journey. Take care, guys. 